You're listening to Journal Entries, a podcast about philosophy and cognitive science where researchers open up about the articles they publish. I'm Wesley Buckwalter. In this episode, Edward Mashery talks about his paper with Benjamin et al., Redefined Statistical Significance, published in Nature Human Behavior in 2018. Edward is a distinguished professor in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science and the director for the Center of Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh, where he works primarily on philosophical issues raised by cognitive science and neuroscience. Yeah, so the paper is uh, very simple. What we're just arguing is that we should cut the significance level by an order of magnitude. So moving it from 0.05 to 0.005 in order to address the replication crisis. So that's a very simple message. It's one of the beauty of the paper, really. You know, simple idea. And the, the paper is really very, uh, or the structure is also very simple. Uh, we ex- first explain why 0.05 is a wrong threshold. Then we explain why 0.005 would be a better threshold. And then we address a few objections. I think the history of 0.05 is quite complicated. In fact, uh, while it was codified by, by Fisher, Fisher himself actually changed quite a bit his tune with respect to 0.05. At the beginning, it's actually fairly clear that 0.05 is a good threshold. Later on in his life, he actually thinks there should be no threshold whatsoever. Um, and it also ties with practices that predate Fisher's work uh, in, in a complicated manner. So there's actually quite a bit of history of statistics on, 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 the, on the matter. I think one of the shortcomings, a, a tiny shortcomings of the paper we published in, in Nature, Human Behavior, was in fact a history. I think we say somewhere that Fisher was responsible for the 0.05. Well, in fact, the history is much more complicated than that. It's a, it's a small, tiny point. And I think the history here is, 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 is fascinating. And one interesting aspect for history and philosophy of science like me is how decisions made uh, one century ago are still with us and, in fact, might uh, weigh down science. Uh, and the fact that we, you know, they get, um, they get um, part of the way we do science and somehow we stop reflecting on these decisions and they frame the type of science we're doing for decades. In fact, here for more than a, for nearly a century. Uh, I think a remarkable aspect of of science. People think that science is a very self-reflective practice, but in fact, here we have a very clear counterexample. The notion of a p-value is one of the most misunderstood concepts in science by scientists, which is amazing because every single paper, not every single paper, but pretty much 90% of scientific papers use p-values, but then when you ask a scientist to define a p-value, you usually get a mistaken answer. Um, and worse, some textbooks, including some intro to stats textbook, mischaracterize uh, p-values. So what's a p-value? Well, a p-value is, uh, to simplify a tiny bit, but not too much, it's uh, the probability of the observed data or more extreme data conditional on the null hypothesis. Right? So the null hypothesis specify a specific distribution of uh, data points in a population, right? And the p-value describes the probability of observing the data that we've actually observed, or more extreme data, data that would be further from a null hypothesis, if the null hypothesis is true. It's used as a way to decide whether or not uh, the hypothesis the scientist had in mind is supported by the data. 
So the way scientists use it is that they set a significance level, a criterion. And the p-value has to be below this criterion for them to conclude that the data invalidates the null hypothesis and as a result, support their, uh, their own hypothesis. So scientists, for example, will want to say that, let's say, a drug works. And the scientists will create two conditions, one in which people are given the drug, for example, against COVID-19, and, and one condition in which they're given a placebo, something like sugar, for example. And the question is, will the drug make people feel better after a couple of weeks or after a few weeks? Now, what they do, they give people the drugs, they give, people, they give the other people the placebo in a random manner, and uh, after a few weeks, they measure improvements in the health of the participants. They take the difference in uh, improvements between the test condition and the control condition, and then they compute the p-value. The probability of getting that difference, or a larger difference, if there is no real difference, if the drug has no impact. And then if that p-value is below a significance level, they say, oh, the null hypothesis is false. The hypothesis that there is no difference is false. As a conclusion, we can accept the hypothesis that there is a difference between the test condition and the control condition. Right? So the way it's used is you must set a significance level. When the p-value is below the significance level, you can reject the null hypothesis and endorse your own hypothesis, for example, the hypothesis that the drug is actually efficient, that the drug is actually working, improving people's health. Um, in, in practice, in many sciences, not in all, of course, in many sciences, the significance level is put at 0 0.05, 0 0.05. Right? So you need to have a p-value lower than 0 0.05 to be able to reject the null hypothesis and conclude that your own hypothesis, the one you really want to support, is actually supported by the data you've observed. Um, and the whole point of the paper is to argue, look, 0 0.05 is just a bad, bad level. It's, it's way too high. We need to cut it down, and cut it down substantially, at least an order of magnitude. I'm going to try to walk you through the argument for why 0 0.05 is a weak significance level. And that's a little bit complicated. Um, so the first thing to do is to uh, keep in mind that 0 0.05, uh, that a p-value is not comparative. Right? It does not provide you a comparison between two hypotheses. It just takes a null hypothesis, the hypothesis that there is no difference between two, two conditions, for example, and tells you what the probability of the data you've observed and more extreme data are conditional on this null hypothesis. So it does not compare two hypotheses, just takes one hypothesis, a null hypothesis. It means for that and other reasons, that it's not quite a good measure of evidence, right? A good measure of evidence would take two co competing hypotheses, the null hypothesis and the scientist hypothesis, which we can call the alternative hypothesis, and says, look, the data supports more the alternative hypothesis, the scientist hypothesis, than the, than the null hypothesis. So a good measure of evidence would be comparative. And furthermore, one might think that the measure of evidence really depends on the data you've observed, what data you have seen, and not data you have not observed. Right? The p-value depends on the data you've observed, but also on these things like more extreme data, which are data you haven't seen, really. Data you could have seen, but you haven't really seen. P-values aren't really a good measure of evidence. 
So what we needed to do was to translate p-values into a good measure of evidence. And a good measure of evidence is, um, in a Bayesian framework, base factors. So a base factor is the probability of the data you've observed. So to compute a base factor, you compare two things. The probability of the data you've observed conditional on your own hypothesis, and the probability of the data you've observed conditional on another hypothesis, maybe the null hypothesis, but any other hypothesis. So a, a base factor, to summarize, is a ratio between the probability of the data you've observed conditional on your own hypothesis and the probability of the data you've observed conditional on another hypothesis, maybe the null hypothesis. Notice that the base factor has two virtues compared to the, to the p-value. It's comparative. It tells you, oh, the data supports more my hypothesis than the other hypothesis. And it only depends on the data you've observed. All right, so what we needed to do is to find a translation between a p-value and a base factor. And that's the technical part of, of, of the paper. It's, it's not very difficult, but it's, it is a little bit te technical. So the idea is, if you put the significance level at 0 0.05, it means that if you get a, a p-value exactly equal to 0 0.05, then you are in a position to claim that the null hypothesis, to reject the null hypothesis and to accept your own hypothesis. So the question is, Let's suppose you have such a, such a p-value. Let's suppose you have a data point or a data set with a p-value exactly equal to 0.05. How much evidence do you have? And which really means, what is your base factor for your own hypothesis and against the null hypothesis? So we need to do this translation from a p-value to a base factor. Now, there is no one-to-one -one, um, translation. And a p-value can, can correspond to many base factors. Why? Well, because the base factor depends on the alternative hypothesis. Right? It depends on which alternative hypothesis you choose. So depending on, on, the, on the alternative hypothesis you choose, there will be different base factors corresponding to the same p-value. So that's, of course, a tricky issue, right? The good news, then, is that you can find the upper bound you can find the maximum base factor that a p-value of 0.05 would correspond to. So what is upper bound? Well, you need to find the hypothesis, the alternative hypothesis, that best predicts the data point. The one that's really um, uh, the, the best possible predictor of the data you've observed. And of course, because that's the best predictor of the data you've observed, no other hypothesis will make a better prediction. And as a result, the base factor, the ratio of the probability of the data condition on your own hypothesis and the probability of the data condition on null hypothesis will be maximal for that hypothesis. So the question is, to find the upper bound, the highest base factor, we need to find the hypothesis that best predicts the data. And what is this hypothesis? Well, that's very obvious. That's the hypothesis that gets exactly right. So hypothesis that predict exactly the data you've observed. No other hypothesis could do better. Right? This one just predicts exactly what you've observed. So we can say that a p-value of 0.05 is going to correspond at most 
to a, the best to a base factor comparing the hypotheses that predict exactly the data you've observed and the null hypothesis. Right. So when you do that, when you had a little bit of math, which I will skip here, um, you can show that a p-value equal to 0 0.05 corresponds at most to a base factor equal to about three. And we want to argue that a base factor equal to about three is just not enough evidence to reject the null hypothesis. Next, I wanted to um, explain why a base factor of three just isn't enough evidence to reject the null, right? So remember, we can translate a p-value equal to 0 0.05 to a base factor equal to about three, slightly, slightly larger than three. And that's the maximum base factor that could uh, correspond to a p-value equal to 0 0.05. So there's a few simplifications here in the background, but I will, I will bracket. Um, why is a, p, a base factor equal to three not, not enough? Well, the reason is, um, the main reason, we give several arguments in the paper, but I think the, the crucial argument is, let's suppose you start with an unlikely hypothesis. Let's suppose your hypothesis, you don't want to test something trivial. And of course, scientists usually don't want to test anything trivial, right? Why would they? If they test something trivial, uh, and if they get evidence that supports their trivial hypothesis, they will not be able to publish it, right? Scientists are incentivized to do original science, to, to find, to make discoveries that are groundbreaking. And that's the only way uh, to, to publish in the top journals, but in fact, to publish at all. Uh, a usual way to reject a paper is to say, look, that's interesting, but that's fairly obvious. Why would anyone doubt uh, that that is the case? So scientists try usually to test unlikely hypotheses. And that really means that the prior probability of this hypothesis is low. It means if you take all the, the hypotheses, it is quite likely, it is more likely to be false than it is true. Right? One way to think about that is that uh, if we take all the hypotheses scientists test, and uh, most of those hypotheses are going to be false, right? They're testing unlikely hypotheses. So what is the probability is going to be false? Well, I don't, I don't really know, but we, we can imagine that maybe only one out of 10 hypotheses will be true, nine out of 10 hypotheses will be false. People do risky science, right? Um, so the prior probability uh, of the hypothesis would be maybe 0.1, which means there's only one chance out of 10 to be true. If you were to choose it randomly uh, 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 among all the possible hypotheses to test, well, nine times out of 10, you would choose a false hypothesis. One time out of 10, you would choose a true hypothesis. So it's doing risky science. And if that's true, and if you reject the null hypothesis because you have a base factor equal to 0.3, well, it turns out that your, um, 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 the posterior probability of your hypothesis, meaning the probability of your hypothesis, once you've collected the data, remains in favor of the null hypothesis. Right? So even if you, start with, uh, uh, if you start with a risky hypothesis, and if you reject it based on a base factor equal to 0.3, at the end of the day, once you've collected the evidence, you should still be betting on the null hypothesis being true. 
right? Because 0.3 is not going to move to be enough to move from an unlikely hypothesis to a likely hypothesis. Right? So, so that's the main reason why we feel that um, a base factor equal to 0.3 just isn't enough when you do risky sales. And most scientists are actually going to do uh, risky uh, risky science. Right? So that's 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 the main that's the main main source behind the behind behind the view. Uh, what you need is a much stronger uh, amount of evidence that allows you to move from an unlikely hypothesis to to a likely hypothesis. And we give various evidence for various arguments for why 0 0.005 is a good threshold. And I think of the three arguments we give, only one of them is really a pretty good argument. And that's the argument that's, uh, are, that uses the false positive rate. So let me explain to you what the false positive rate is. Uh, it's, it's, it's a concept that's been used quite a lot to discuss the replication crisis for now 15 years. And the idea is that it's a proportion of significant results that are false positives, right? So you take all your significant results, all the ones that are below, where the p-value is below the significance level, and you say, and you, and you say, of let's say this 100 significant results, how many of them are false positive? 5%, 10%, 30%, 40% or more. Now, it's a very important uh, quantity because uh, if you have a false positive rate that's very high, and if everything that gets to be published is significant, maybe because if you don't get a significant result, you're not going to submit it to a journal because maybe you think it's not going to be published, or maybe because reviewers really don't want to publish non-significant results, then you're going to, if you're, False positive rate is very high when you open uh, a journal, let's say cognition or cognitive science or the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology, you know that maybe one third or half or two thirds of the significant results you're looking at are false positives. And if you're in that kind of situation, probably you're not going to trust uh, the, the results that are reported in that journal. So that's a very important quantity. And now the false positive rate is a very simple quantity to define, but in a nutshell, it depends on two other quantities. It depends on the prior, so the proportion of hypotheses that are false, or the proportion of hypotheses that are true. You know, we, we've looked already at this quantity before. It also depends on the power of, of your experiment. And the power for memory is a probability of uh, rejecting the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis is false, right? Uh, when you do a, an experiment with a high power, you are doing an experiment such that if the null hypothesis is false, then you have a high probability of rejecting it, right? That's the kind of science you want to do. You don't want to do experiments that are such that, well, even if the null is false, I, I have no chance to reject it or barely any chance to reject it. Um, so the false positive rate depends on the prior probability, the significance level, and the power of your experiment. Right? So what we show in the paper is that for many priors, uh, uh, if you cut down the significance level from 0 0.05 to 0 0.005, you can dramatically reduce the uh, a false positive rate. In fact, what we show is that um, if you set your significance level at 0 0.05, as is usually the case, and if your power is 0.8, which means 
If the null hypothesis is false, you have eight chance out of 10 to reject the null hypothesis. That's a very high power, much larger than the real power in, in psychology. So if your uh, significance level is at 0 0.05 and your um, power is at 0.8, then for many priors, the rate of uh, false positive among significant finding is 30%, more than 30%. So three significant results out of 10 is a false positive. We think it's huge. We think it's unacceptable. We think it's disturbing. We think it actually undermines the trustworthiness of science. By contrast, supposing again that you have a power of 0.8, and for the same range of prior probabilities, if you set your significance level at 0 0.005, you decrease the false positive rate from about 35% to 5%. So only one significant result out of 20 happens to be a false positive. We think that's, you know, one might think it's not great, but we think that's acceptable. And in fact, we think that the kind of, of, of proportion that many scientists are willing to live with, right? Many scientists are probably willing to live uh, in, in a world in which when they open their journals and they look at 20 experiments, yeah, one of them, 20 significant results, one of them is a false positive. Not too bad, meaning 19 of them are true positive, actually. Uh, you know, that's, that's not perfect, but actually that's a risk where we think most scientists are willing to take. So the suggestion here is that for a range of, of prior probabilities, depending on how risky your science is, and for a high power 0.8, you know, moving from 0.05 to 0.005 is, is going to decrease your uh, uh, false positive rate by uh, uh, a ratio of seven and, and bring it to 0 .00, 2.05, which I think, which, which is, we think is, which we think is acceptable. So many scientists, in fact, think that the significance level is identical to false positive rate, right? So that's why they think that uh, when they have a significance level at 0 0.05, it means that only 5% of the significant findings are false positive. But that's not at all what it means, right? It, it means something very different. It just means the probability of getting the data we observe or more accurate data conditional on the null hypothesis being true. Uh, but that's compatible with a false positive rate being as high as 30, 50, or 60%, depending on the power, um, the significance level, and the prior probability, right? So in fact, what scientists always have had in mind is something like the false positive rate. And what we are doing by setting the, the significance level at 0 0.005 is giving them what they've always wanted. Even so, they didn't want, they didn't know that it was what they wanted, right? What, what people really want is, okay, here's a bunch of significant results. How many of them are false positive? And what people really want is a, is a low number, maybe 5%. That's a false positive rate. If you fix your significance level at 0 0.005 instead of 0 0.05, you're going to get what you want. That's a message we're, we're giving scientists. So in the paper, we consider many uh, objections to our, our work. And actually, many of the objections have, have been made in print immediately after the publication of our paper. And we consider three objections, mostly. One of them is that by decreasing the significance level, we're going to increase the rate of false negatives. So for memory of false negative is a failure 
to reject the null hypothesis when the null hypothesis happens to be false, and that's bad. You know, there's a real phenomenon to be found, and we fail to, to find it. That's, that's a bad thing, too. That's the first objection. A second objection is, well, look, there are many other issues uh, that are responsible for the replication crisis, and why aren't you talking about those? Well, that's a second objection. And a third objection is, well, why are you still sticking to classical statistics or frequency statistics? Why aren't we all becoming Bayesian statisticians? Um, so let me just say a few words about these three objections. I think the second one is a bit silly. Of course, there are many reasons, uh, many explanations, and many causes to the replication crisis. Um, and we acknowledge that in the paper, but the reason we focus on the significance level is because we believe that publication without a sufficient amount of evidence is one of the main reasons uh, for the replication crisis. And it's a very simple intervention that will have, we believe, a dramatic impact on science. Um, so it's an important cause, and it's a very simple intervention. So that's, uh, it, it strikes me as good enough reason to be focusing on, on that idea. Why not switch to base? Um, well, I think there's a, 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 a lot of reasons. One of them is um, to do Bayes in the right way is actually not easy. So, um, and here I'm just going to speak for myself and not for my collaborators on this paper. So many of my collaborators are Bayesian, so they, will, they would be delighted if we all move to a Bayesian framework. And indeed, they've developed tools and internet softwares to, to compute base factor and to do statistics based on base factor. I tend to think that if you want to become a Bayesian, you should not imitate what classical statisticians are doing. So you should not do t-tests in a Bayesian framework using base factor instead of p-value. You should not do the Bayesian counterpart based on base factor, in, uh, 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 the Bayesian counterparts of classical statistics based on base factor. You should become a full-blown Bayesian. You should build Bayesian models uh, 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 based on reasonable assumptions about the priors, and you should update them in light of the, of, of the data. And that requires quite a bit of training uh, in, in statistics. It's not the kind of things you can easily learn and in, in a matter of a couple of weeks and then just go online and use uh, Jasper, which is one of the new softwares to do these kind of things, or even some of the um, applications on R, uh, as you can do, for example, with base factors. So base factors are easy to use. Uh, but I think if you want to become a Bayesian statistic, you should do it well. And you should learn to, 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 to develop Bayesian models and learn how to compute posterior probabilities uh, uh, by using approximation algorithms and this kind of thing. It's doable. Uh, no, I don't think it's, it's uh, impossible to do. There are excellent textbooks to do that. But that does require a, a, a quite a fair amount of work. And I don't think it's reasonable to expect all scientists, particularly scientists who have, who have already made quite a career, uh, you know, they've been successful, they've published 30 papers, they're already full professor or associate professors. You know, they might have, God knows, 100 papers behind their belt, uh, below their belt. Uh, it's not reasonable to expect those people to uh, suddenly move to another statistical framework. Uh, I think what we want is at least a, a simple way to improve statistics. And, and that's what our, our, our proposal is all about. Now, the first one is a bit of a better objection, right? And the reason is that there is a trade-off when everything else is equal between false positives and false negatives. 
So if you reduce the significance level, you're going to reduce the rate of false positives. So the false positive rate is going to go down, as we saw a minute ago. But because you make it harder to reject uh, the null hypothesis, you're going to increase the rate of false negatives. Right? So when you keep uh, uh, the power of your experiment fixed, when you decrease the significance level, you decrease the frequency of false positives, but increase um, uh, uh, the frequency of uh, false negatives. And that's a real worry, because one might think that false negatives are as bad as false positives. We don't want to miss real discoveries. Now, I think that's a, that's a, a real concern, uh, particularly in some contexts. We've already talked about COVID-19 and, and drug testing, this kind of thing. But the key point here uh, that, I'm, that we make in the paper, and I think uh, that I make in uh, follow-up uh, uh, papers also, is that things need not be equal. Uh, what we want is, in fact, decrease the significance level, decrease the probability of making a false positive, and increase the sample size of experiments. If one increases the sample size of experiment, one increases uh, the power of one experiment, and one can keep the rate of false negative constant. Right? So the idea is, well, by itself, uh, maybe that's in a way my take on, on this objection, which I think is a very important objection, that by itself, maybe decreasing the significance level might not be such a good idea because it would result in uh, an increase in false negative. But combined with an increase of, uh, in, in, in the sample size, we're going to be able to maintain the rate of false negatives constant and decrease dramatically the, rate, the, the frequency of, of false positives. So what I'm what I, what I really suggesting here is that we want a combo. We want two things to happen at the same time, a decrease of false positive and an increase uh, in the sample size of, of experiment. In any case, I do think we need to increase the sample size of experiments. Uh, right now, and it is still the case, Many experiments are based on an insufficiently large sample size. Uh, earlier, I mentioned that when we computed the, uh, the false positive rate, we assumed a power of 0.8. That's an idealization. For now, 60 years, the power in psychology has been equal to 0.5, meaning if the null hypothesis is, happens to be false, so you know, there's a real discovery to be made, then you have one chance out of two to show that it's false. That's ridiculous. You'd better throw a coin. It's faster, less expensive, and works as well as your experiment, right? So um, what power of 0.5 is unacceptable. It's been the average power in psychology for now 60 years. Uh, it needs to increase, and it must increase. And so the best way to increase power is one of the ways to increase power, but the most obvious way is by increasing the sample size. Um, so sample size must increase, and when we combine it with a decrease of the, of the significance level, we will uh, maintain the rate of false negatives constant. I should say one thing here. We, uh, many of my examples are drawn from psychology. And sometimes people say, yes, there's a problem with social psychology. But that's not a problem with science. Things are much better outside in other disciplines. Not so, in fact. Uh, studies of the power in neuroscience suggest that it's usually uh, around 0 0.2, 0 0.3, which means even lower than psychology. Studies of various fields in um, drug testing 
and various areas of the biomedical sciences suggest that the average power is, wait, 0 0.08, less than 0.1, which is an unbelievably low power. One wonder why, what are people thinking when they do biomedical experiments where the chance of rejecting the null, if the null is false, the chance of making a real discovery is less than 1 out of 10. Uh, so the issue is not an issue for, um, for psychology. It's an issue with many other sciences, ecology, uh, evolutionary, evolutionary biology, the part which is experimental, uh, psychology, neuroscience, the biomedical sciences, and so on and so forth. Um, so we need to increase sample size. We need to move to big science. Um, there's no way around that. And if we do that, we're going to maintain the rate of false um, uh, negative constant, even if we uh, decrease the rate of, of false positives. If it turns out that in some fields, you actually cannot increase sample size. So for example, you're doing cognitive anthropology and you're working with a um, small scale societies uh, you know, uh, in Amazonia and you're going to, to, to work with people that are, um, that, you know, to work in population in villages that are really small. Now, surely you're not going to get hundreds of participants because there aren't hundreds of, of people speaking that language or living in that community. Uh, in that case, I think the right thing to do is not to pretend that you have amazing evidence for your hypothesis. It's just to say, look, um, here is some weak evidence for my hypothesis. It suggests something. It's better than nothing, and that's the best we will ever get, given the limited amount of, of evidence we will ever be in a position to get. Right? So I think the right thing to do is that when you can't get good evidence, well, you might still want to do the science, but you should just be completely honest about the fact that it's, you're working in an area where you can't get strong evidence for your hypothesis. Right? Uh, and I think then you, you want to talk of suggestive evidence. You, want to re, you, you don't want to assert that you've made discoveries based on, on data that just can't allow you to make discoveries. I think that's the same, same kind of things we find when we do uh, you know, uh, the history of paleoanthropology or, or, or when we do the historical census and when we look at the deep past. You know, what we can get in this area is at best suggestive evidence. And I think the mistake is to say, oh, no, we have very clear evidence that blah, 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 instead of saying, well, we find suggestive evidence that might suggest that. Um, so I think the responsible things to do as scientists is to calibrate the strengths of our conclusion based on the type of evidence we're able to, to get. Um, so if you can't get good evidence, maybe you should keep doing the science, but you should uh, modulate the strengths of the claim you're making. I'd like to respond to what I take to be the most interesting point in uh, Dalian Lacan's uh, paper, Justify Your, Your Alpha, that was published, I believe, one year after our own paper was published. So the criticism here is that we shouldn't have a standard. We, sh we should, in every scientific context, think very hard about what the right significance level is and uh, decide, depending on the cost of false positive and the cost of false negative, right? have an adaptive uh, significance level rather than a fixed one. I think in principle, Lacan's and colleagues might be right that in an idealized scientific context, we would want to set up the significance level by looking at the cost of false positive and false negative. But I don't think that the way science is done, and I don't think that science can be done because of the 
limited resources. We are finite being, as uh, Herb Simon said a long time ago. And that's true of the subjects of psychological experiment. And it's true of the scientists too. Sometimes uh, psychologists believe that they themselves are quite different from the scientists. But we all have finite cognitive resources and we must use crutches in order to make proper decisions. What we've known uh, from, um, I think, the reflection crisis, but also from the history of science, that scientists are not that reflective. Most scientists really don't have time or the inclination or the resources or the training to be extremely reflective about every aspect of the science. Some things must be taken for granted. They must be part of the, norm, of the norms that are governing science, such that uh, people don't have to think about every aspect of doing science. And I think here it's a very important lesson that fits with some of the best psychology. We are limited uh, 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 cognizers, our resources are limited. When we, do, when we act and science is full of action, we can't think about every aspect of our decision. So we must, in a sense, externalize some aspects of our decision. We must rely on norms that are going to help us act properly. And I think what we want is to have a normative apparatus of science that helps scientists make good decisions when they, good, when they do science most of the time, right? And I think the significance level is one of these crutches, one might say, one of these norms that is there to help scientists not having to think about everything when they do, when they do science. Um, you know, I think the, the Lacan's and colleagues' proposal, as well as the proposals coming from many statisticians, do take scientists to have an enormous amount of intellectual resources, the capacity to think about every single possible aspect of research, and basically ignoring the realities of, uh, doing, of, doing, of doing science. I think what we want is science for limited scientists, limited human beings who have limited cognitive resources, limited financial resources, and so on and so forth. And I think our proposal is exactly geared toward real science, not toward idealized science. Um, and the alternative, you should decide in advance what your significance level is going to be, taking into account the cost of false positives, the cost of false negatives. While great in, 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 in an ideal world is actually a bad advice in practice. And there are also other considerations why it's a bad advice. One of them is it's not going to look good. Uh, you know, uh, lay people are actually worried that scientists are, are, you know, manipulating their data. And for good reason, because scientists are manipulating their data. And now we tell them, oh, look, in addition to, to being able to drop an outlier, they can also change their significance level depending on very vague costs, which are hard to specify. How good is that going to look? And, uh, and how are reviewers going to be able to make these decisions? And so on and so forth. So um, uh, I think this, this idealized view of science just really, when it meets, when it meets a road, is just bound to fail. Uh, that does not mean that in some circumstances we should not relax a significant level. Of course we should. Like, you know, in extreme circumstances, like you do drug testing in a situation of crisis, you do, in, uh, you do exploratory science. You really need to explore the set of possibilities. Of course, relax a significant level. No one's going to object to that. But, but that's perfectly compatible for default significance level in situations of everyday, everyday science. 
The other response I'd like to mention is uh, one which I thought was very interesting. Uh, the idea was when we computed the false positive rate and the effect of decreasing the false positive rate, we didn't take into account p-hacking. Uh, and p-hacking for memory is all the practices that increase the probability of getting a significant result. So you might drop one data point, you might run 20 different analyses, you might look at 20 different measures and just find out the ones that works and so on and so forth. All of that increased the probability of getting a significant result. And the idea was, well, our proposal works well when there's no p-hacking, but as soon as you, as you, as you add p-hacking to the picture, our proposal fails. Um, and, and so that, that was the, the suggestion. Um, and I think that's something we did not consider in the paper. So it was actually a useful, <clears throat> a useful contribution to the debate. Unfortunately, this objection really failed as well. And it fails because of the costs of doing p-hacking when you decrease a significant result, the significance level. It's very easy to p-hack to 0.05. Um, um, Simonson and colleagues have shown that by just doing a few uh, manipulations of your data, and you drop a few outliers, you add a covariate, and you compare two or three dependent variables, you're likely to get a significant result when your significance level is at 0.05. However, the number of manipulations you need to do increases exponentially. Now, we're all used to exponential curves these days because of COVID-19, uh, but you know they have this very increasing speed. Um, so for 0.05, few manipulations are, are, are sufficient to, get, to be likely to get a significant result. For 0.005, you need to do dozens of manipulations to your data. And now, what I think is the case is that scientists, at least in the past, have been willing to play a little bit with the data, not because, they want, not because they were trying to fraud, but because they were trying to say, oh, well, what do our data really show? You know, what do our data show this, shows that? What, maybe it's due to a bad outlier. Maybe it's, that measure doesn't work. Maybe this measure works better. So they're exploring their data. And then they're reporting the outcome of the exploration. I see that was what they intended to show in the first place. So not, 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 not really being engaged in fraud at all, um, but rather uh, exploring data, what the data really show, and confusing exploration with testing a hypothesis. I think that was a very common practice, and I do believe it's still reasonably common. Uh, I think it's fine to do that, provided you actually don't say that it was testing a hypothesis in the first place. I think it's fine to do that, but you're not going to be able to do that when the significance level is at 0.005. Because you're not going to be, to be able to explore just a little bit your data. You're going to have to do a systematic manipulation of your data in all possible ways to get a significant level. Dozens of different ways of looking at your data. And that's going to start feeling like you're frauding. It's going to start feeling, oh, I'm not simply exploring my data. I'm not simply at, at trying to, to see what my data are telling me. I'm trying to manipulate my data so as, so as to get the results that allow me to get a publication. So I think there's a difference between doing a few things to your data to see what they might tell, to manipulating, massaging your data in a, in a crazy way so as to get a significant results. So, so once you take into account uh, p-hacking, you just realize that, in fact, our proposal will have a very positive side effect 
it will make the hacking much, much, much harder. And I think we believe much less common because scientists are by and large honest people. They don't, they don't want to fraud. They don't want to feel that they're frauding. They don't want to feel that they're, that they're cheating. They don't view themselves as cheaters. They actually are committed to a norm of doing good science. Uh, they are tolerating exploring data because that's a common practice. They're not tolerating massaging the data to a point where it looks like fraud. So I think a side effect of, of our project, which we hadn't discussed at all in the original paper, but that I believe is actually true, that it might reduce the frequency of uh, p-hacking. A few years after the publication, I think it's probably time now to try to assess whether it's been a success or, or not. I mean, our goal was really to get journals to just change their uh, uh, requirements and to be explicit as well as associations, like the Psychological Association and so on and so forth, APS or the APA. Uh, I think in that respect, we failed. Uh, to my knowledge, no journal has officially endorsed 0.005 as an expected threshold for significance. Um, in other respects, we've been more successful. I think we've brought... Uh, an important topic to, to discussion, and, and there's been a lot of discussion of these ideas uh, among psychologists and other scientists. So in that respect, it's been quite successful. And also, indeed, I think we've um, slightly changed expectations. You know, if, if uh, all the p-values in a paper are around 0.4, uh, uh, there will be some concerns about the quality of the science that's, that's getting submitted. Uh, so that's, that's, in a sense, uh, a byproduct of, of, the, of the debate we created rather than our intended uh, goal. So, and I think we failed, I think, um, to meet our, our main goal largely because of the reaction of the critics. Uh, I think uh, the critics were just not very helpful. So, you know, the, our paper created a flurry of responses, uh, you know, dozens of blog posts and a bunch of publications and, and so on and so forth. And many of these responses, instead of uh, taking a pragmatic approach, how to make science uh, better, how to decrease the proportion of false positives in science, uh, just went to you know, foundational questions about Bayesian statistics versus frequency statistics and, and so on and so forth, um, which in a sense um, prevented scientists to just see the simple pragmatic point we were trying to make in this paper. So uh, you know, the main goal here was let's bracket all disagreements about foundational question. Let's try to improve science by, by doing simple things. And that simple idea was lost, I think, in the debate. And the outcome is that we haven't been able to uh, change the norms as much as probably we were hoping. Where to go next? I, I don't exactly know. And to be honest, I, I do worry sometimes that all the proposals that we are making, and by we, I don't mean the authors of this paper, but in general, people who care about improving science, all these proposals work for a short period, but again, gets subverted by, in a sense, inertia. Um, for example, pre-registration, uh, the idea of indicating before doing one experiment what the, hypo what the hypotheses are, what, what data are going to be collected, and how the data are going to be analyzed. 
is an excellent idea that in a sense addresses some of the causes of the replication crisis, particularly p-hacking. On the other hand, what we've seen now for the last two or three years is that pre-registration has been subverted to the point that it's now often pretty much useless. People pre-register very vague hypotheses. They don't pre-register their data analysis. They pre-register 20 different measures. They pre-register many different ways at looking at the data. And the outcome is that the value of pre-registration is, is zero. Uh, if you pre-register 20 measures and report only one of them in your paper, then uh, you're, you are, in fact, p-hacking, and you're pre-registering that you're going to be p-hacking. Uh, so the worry here is that um, many good ideas have been put forward, but some of these best ideas, such as uh, you know, cutting your p-value, setting your significance level to 0.005, or pre-registering your, your research, are getting subverted by science. So I, I don't... I don't, I don't exactly know where to go from, from, from there. There are signs that some aspects of science are improving. The sample size has been increasing over the last two or three years, suggesting that um, scientists have been sensitive to some of the debates that have taken place and to issues with having a very low sample size. Um, I think there's been an improvement in the kind of statistics people are doing. I think you see more and more sophisticated statistics uh, coming from um, uh, psychologists. Uh, so that's an improvement. Um, but, you, but I think the, um, the room for optimism is not, is not very large. Uh, there's concern that science is a very inertial system and that changing its course is actually much harder than what we the authors of the Benjamin et al. paper, but also people concerned with improving science, what we thought um, maybe three or four years ago. Um, so I, 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 I see signs for optimism. I also see signs for, 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 for concern in the inertia of, of science. I also should say that um, in reaction to our proposal and also others' proposals, not only I thought were the debates less than useful, I also thought um, established scientists uh, were less than helpful partners. Uh, there was a lot of talk, and there is still a lot of talk, to the extent that all is fine and dandy, and we can still keep doing the science we were doing 10 years ago. Uh, people at, coming from very prestigious places at Harvard and Princeton, and no name will be given here, uh, have actually, I think, undermine scientific reforms by publishing op-eds, special issues in proceeding of the National, Science, National Academy of Science, the Sciences, and so on and so forth, arguing again and again that we should trust science and that science is doing just well. I do think this is, I understand where it comes from. So that, you know, we, live in a, we live at a time where um, there's a distrust in science uh, so I understand where it comes from. You don't want to foster distrust in science. But I do think that it has undermined some of the efforts to do better science. Um, and that also another reason why I'm not extremely optimistic these days. That's it for today's episode. Visit our website at journalentries.fireside.fm for more information about Edward Ashery, his work, and some of the resources mentioned in this episode. 
Special thanks to Two Cheers for creating our theme music and to Christopher McDonald for sound engineering.